Hey guys, this is our weekly podcast by Cornerstone Church of Ione. We're so glad that you decided to join. We are a church family passionate about seeing people worship Jesus, grow in their faith, and serve those around them. If you would like to learn more about Cornerstone, please visit us at cornerstoneione.org, or you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Well, good morning. All right. I don't want to draw attention to it necessarily, but it's been so horrendous, I have to. I'm going to apologize for my voice right now. The pollen has been cursed this year. I cannot recover. The wind makes it all that much worse. So we're going to shorten the sermon. We can't, we can't, uh, we can't listen to this all day. So uh, as Jack already mentioned, and I can't help but just mention again, uh, the genesis of this particular church in the park is, uh, is Crystal. Uh, I wasn't sure exactly how to celebrate Crystal. Or we're going to do the switch. You got that? Jack, you got the mic? Yeah. Do it. <laughs> All right. We thought we might switch to this. All right. So uh, the genesis of this was, uh, was Crystal. I, I asked uh, Karen, who uh, she likes to uh, organize things and then take the bull by the horns and make sure everything goes perfectly. And so I asked her, I said, hey, how do we celebrate something like this? I mean, she's not leaving the church. She's just kind of like, hey, uh, 12 years, we're going to hand this off now. How do we celebrate that? And she came up with the idea, let's do church in the park and a barbecue, uh, encourage people uh, to say thank you to Crystal. And, uh, and, and if there's a special moment where she impacted your kid's life, uh, to share that. And, uh, and so this week, kind of like get everybody together, one service in the park, and, uh, and kind of make a focus for Crystal. So again, thank you, Crystal, for everything. And I will tell you one, uh, one example. I won't tell you which kid of mine. I'm going to say he... Just because I don't want to say he, she the entire time. There was a moment where one of my kids was struggling with doing something they shouldn't be doing. And when I went and talked to this person about it, uh, he said, in Sunday school, they taught us to flee from sin. And he said, so I wanted to go do this thing that was up towards the garage of our house and he said, and I realized I shouldn't. So I ran all the way down the hill to the other side of the property. <laughs> but what is cool, though, is that is just one example of probably literally two dozen where our kids literally have referenced what they've learned in the children's program to real life stuff that is biblical. Not to mention all of the great questions that have been raised that we don't necessarily have the answers to which I appreciate as well. So uh, very good job. I personally have appreciated and seen the effect in my own kid's life. So I appreciate that. Thank you, Crystal. Uh, we are in Luke chapter 17. So if you have a Bible or a device or something, open it up. So let's work through it together. I'm going to apologize. Uh, over the course of several days, these sermons get put together. And uh, you're going to notice that it goes from NLT to ESV back to NLT. And that's because I typically do the majority of my studying and reading through the ESV. And, uh, and I switched to that and forgot to switch back over. So some of you guys may be like, ah, that's weird. It was exactly what my Bible was saying. And then pretty close to what my Bible was saying. But that's why. All right, we're going to read one through three first. Just a couple verses. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, 
There will always be temptations to sin. But what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? It would be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck than to cause one of the little ones, one of the least of these, to fall into sin. So watch yourselves. We could do literally two weeks on this. This is very interesting to me because it gets into this. Okay, first off, the reality is, for us, and this is good for us to be reminded, we will, temptations are always going to be there. It's not that we're going to get to a point in our life where there are no more temptations. If I was more bold, I'd say, who's the oldest person here? <laughs> okay, now not, don't answer this other one. Are you still tempted to sin? And the answer would be yes. So the youngest Christian here, follower of Jesus, is struggling with temptations to sin. The oldest Christian here is still having temptations to sin. That will always be there. Uh, sometimes we talk about those as uh, things being tossed up towards our feet that we then trip over, right? Or stumbling blocks. And what we mean by those are things that... These temptations that we probably authentically wish were not there. Then we find ourselves, for whatever reason, having to face this decision. And it's tempting us. The temptation is coming from within you, by the way. The lure is coming from within you. And uh, I believe that the spiritual world is very real. Uh, that there's real battles that are happening. But let us not confuse our own sinfulness with always blaming some spiritual force outside of us. Does that make sense at all? What is important for us to remember is that we have sinful desires. They're the fleshly desires. And so when we see something... What we have to realize sometimes is that these temptations are always going to be there. The allure, the majority of the time, is our sinfulness wanting what we shouldn't have. That reality will always plague us. The ability to conquer sin has been brought to us by Jesus Christ on the cross, though. The things that are tossed towards our feet in our walk with Jesus that cause us to stumble, all this metaphorical language, figurative language, is really talking about the things that we actually, actually want that we shouldn't want. The things that we actually want that are wrong. And that is kind of sobering, right? If, you are, if I was like, hey, uh, you're going to have to study this passage for 7 to 10 days. That's difficult to sit with that for a week. To have to realize that the things that do tempt me are the reality of that those are the things I actually want. And I will not go through and list those. That is embarrassing. Temptation is the enticing and luring to do what God has determined is wrong or not to do what God has determined is right. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, it says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. 
And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. CJ and I do a podcast. I don't know if you've heard of it. Shameless plug, C2A podcast. One of the episodes we just did, I think it actually released this week, are our most out-of-context verses. Uh, the title's dramatic. I don't know if it's the most. But we listed some, we talked about it. This is one that does get taken out of context. And I wish we had time to go into it, but I'll just make a point. I'm going to read the same verse. I'm going to try to uh, make emphasis. And imagine where I make emphasis, there's italicized writing. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. So the first part is that there should never be a time where we are tempted by a sin and then we blame our lack of resistance on that, well, nobody else has to deal with this. This was so unique. I'm in such a terrible spot here. I got such terrible people around me. There is no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And then it says this, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. Okay, so that part is true. But with the temptation, so that doesn't always mean that God's going to remove that temptation, but by the power of the Holy Spirit in a follower of Jesus, we will not be tempted beyond our ability, but with that temptation, he will also provide, so there's going to be also, with the temptation, also provide a way of escaping that. In one way or another, there is an escape. There's a way to, to come out of that in a righteous sense, and I believe that it is by the power of the Holy Spirit that we are able to fight against sin in that way. That you may be able to endure it. I do not believe that we are enslaved to sin anymore, and that means several things. And I think that one of them is that we can fight sin in such a way by the power of the Holy Spirit. That a new covenant is not only in the new covenant, but uniquely in the new covenant. One of the things that we can take away from this is that temptation is not a sin. <coughs> right? Quick example. Kids, your parents say, do not take orange soda out of our refrigerator without asking. Kid shows up for some reason opens the refrigerator they have no business being in. This is not specific at all. <laughs> and sees the orange soda there. That kid's desire to take that soda, I do not believe the Bible communicates as sin. Because that is always going to be there. Right? To the oldest, to the youngest. That's always going to be there. The sin is when you make the decision to do what God has said not to do or not to do what God has said to do. It is God's moral law. And when we break that, that would be the sin. Adults, we will go with lying. I think that there's not an adult sitting here that, couldn't, that would say, I have never lied. The temptation Guys, to tell your wife, I did not buy a new gun, is not the sin. You lying to your wife is the sin. Ladies, 
I have no example for you. <laughs> we get it, right? Do we get the idea? So somebody put it this way once. They said you can't stop a bird from landing in your hair, but you can stop it from building a nest, right? And the idea is this, that there are going to be temptations. I've watched people for years of their life battle temptations. I don't believe that they sinned because they had these desires. Because they battled, they fought against it. And that's what Christians do. So be encouraged by that. If you have these temptations that seem absolutely perverted within you, and you are fighting against those, that is what God, that is what godly people do. That is what Christ followers do. They fight sin and they put it to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. The sin is then when we then go and do those things. That's a good differentiation. Also, the reality is that none of us are exempt. Uh, one of the things that I found very interesting is when I read Romans chapter 7. I'd read it several times. Finally, I got to that point, and for some reason, I actually realized what it said. We have a hero of the Bible, Paul, struggling with sin. We don't necessarily have time to go into the text and read it and debrief it together, but you see him battle with sin. He's saying things like, I know those are things I shouldn't do, but I want to do them. But then really, I don't want to do those things, but yet I'm doing them. And then the things that I do want to do, I don't do for some reason. And for me, like, maybe it's the moment of my personal life, but in that moment, like, I could identify with that. Because what I then go into is wonder if I'm really saved at all. Knowing what sin is, is important. We go back to Luke chapter 11, verse 4. We're reading through and we're being taught how to pray. One of the things we pray is lead us not into temptation. That's supposed to be part of our regular prayer. And the idea is that we can pray and ask God to help redirect us away from those things, to minimize the temptations. We know they're always going to be there, but there's nothing wrong with praying to be delivered from them. Does that make sense? So let that be part of your prayer because I would be willing to bet that many of us have found ourselves maybe weaker than we thought with certain sins and certain temptations. And so be praying that God would deliver us from those. Have us not even have to face those temptations or us be able to recognize that we need a tremendous amount of the Lord's work in our life to be delivered from those. But what's interesting is that's not what the woe is about. It's not woe to the person who's tempted. It's not woe to the temptations. The woe are for the people who do the tempting. It's fairly serious unless you like drowning to death. Right? He said it is better then to tempt somebody. In the little ones, our culture is different. Think of the most insignificant person you can think of. That's a horrible example. Actually, don't do that. <laughs> but that, that's what's being talked about here. In this culture, kids were uh, uh, like the most insignificant. You can have an adult that acts like a waste of life, but still more valuable based upon age than the children. In fact, there were even rabbis who had... Uh, pieces of wisdom that says it's a foolish man who spends time with children. And not just like hanging out, playing games, but just spends time with them in general. 
So even to cause the least of them, whoever that is, the least of the important people to sin. He says, better, it would be better for you than to cause them to stumble. It would be better for you to tie a couple of 80-pound sacks of concrete to your neck and be thrown into the ocean. What I like seeing when I read this stuff is I want to see like who Jesus is, who our God is, what he values, what he's teaching people who are not so different than us. And what he's teaching is don't you dare begin tempting people away from me. He is the God of the universe. He knits us together. He created everything that there is. Anything that we are capable of doing is because he designed us to be able to do it. There is one king, and it's not a king of a region, it's a king of the universe. The cosmic king says, don't you dare tempt somebody away from me. And then our God says, it would be better for you to have cement tied to your neck and thrown into the ocean than the cause the least of these to be tempted. For me, that's kind of shocking and scary. Continuing in verse 3, if another believer sins, rebuke that person. Then, if there is repentance, forgive. Even if that person wrongs you seven times a day, and each time turns again and asks for forgiveness, you must forgive them. By a show of hands, who have experienced this in their life where you had to be the forgiver more than once? Raise your hand if you've been there. Yeah, I think everybody. Otherwise, you got a lot better friends than me. All of us have been there. And we can get, we can get this, uh, we can get behind the tension here. If they keep doing it, and they keep repenting, I don't want to be around it anymore. It inconveniences me. One of the questions around this text, it says, if another believer sins, is that the person that is sinning by tempting? Or is that the person that is sinning because he was tempted? I don't think it matters. I think that maybe both. In the teaching from the Bible, which is our authority and how we interact with somebody who sins against us over and over and over again, is this. Rebuke that person. The Bible has a whole lot to say about how to do that process. So what you don't want to do is be a part of like a Bible app, Bible reading thing where it sends you one verse a day and it takes you 72 years to read the Bible because you might not be able to connect this, that how we make judgments, how we rebuke people, why we rebuke people has a whole teaching in itself. It comes from this very loving person, a person who desires reconciliation, one who sees their brothers and sisters in Christ as family, with, correct them with gentleness, 
right? There's, there's even a standard by which you make judgments where it's not just reliant upon you over and over again. There's other people involved because we realize we might be wrong in our judgment. So first, most of us, some of us like rebuking people. Raise no and don't. Some of us like that, though. Uh, I personally don't. So if you do, if you're like me, if you ever rebuke somebody, it's probably because you literally love and care for that person. Otherwise, I'm like, I don't want to do it. Bye. Somebody else. In the end, I believe that we are all brothers and sisters in Christ. We're supposed to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so because of that, if somebody sins against me, I should rebuke them, not for my own justice, but for their reconciliation and our relationship. So after you rebuke them, here comes, here comes the process. It's a domino thing. You don't just rebuke and walk away, right? Because here's the reality. If they repent, you have to forgive. Now, some would argue that you must forgive even if they don't repent. But just let's hang out for, for the sake of time, this passage. If you rebuke somebody and they repent of that, then you are to forgive. Is there anybody here this morning who maybe has struggle forgiving other people? Don't raise your hand. That is part of the walk of being a follower of Jesus, of forgiving people. Why in the world should that possibly be a mark of a follower of Jesus? Could it possibly be because we've been forgiven much? You have been forgiven more and in a greater way than you will ever be expected to forgive somebody else. Merely because of the relationship difference between you and I and you and God. You have been forgiven much. And so then as a display of that, we are forgiving people. So how can we bring ourselves to do this? Because the question would be, like when the rubber meets the road, like, oh, uh, you know, somebody lost their temper with me. It didn't really offend me that much. But like, hey, uh, you totally popped off at me. Uh, and they're like, hey, sorry about that. Like, shouldn't have done that. Hey, I won't do that again. All right, you're forgiven. And you're like, look at that. I'm a biblical human being. What about this? When the people closest to you lie to your face, gossip about you, steal from you, lose their temper with you, physically harm you, act selfishly towards you, cheat you, take advantage of you, or unfaithful towards you. How do you do that over and over and over and over again? Like, really? Because that's not easy. Here are a couple that literally I'm personally aware of these situations. What about this? How do you, how do you forgive somebody seven times, 70 times, 700 times. When a drunk driver runs into your broadside with your family inside the car and your daughter has to relearn how to walk and how to say her own name again, how do you forgive that repentant person? Or a woman, for the sake of the family service, who is taken advantage of and still has tears in her eyes 25 years later when she thinks about it. How do you forgive that person? 
Or what about when your boss gives you a sinful ultimatum and puts your job in jeopardy? How do you forgive that person? Or what about when your best friend of 20 years has a political view that is opposed and he gets so upset that he literally knocks your teeth out of your head in front of your family? How do you, how do you forgive that person? Luke chapter 17 verse 5. This is the apostles' response to the challenge that temptations will always be there, but woe to the ones who cause even the least of these, these little ones, to sin and tempts them to sin. If your brother does sin, you have a responsibility to rebuke them and then be a forgiving person over and over and over again. This is the apostle's response. Increase our faith. I do not believe that was recorded by accident. Because I believe that's the answer. How do you get through this? How do you then go and you actually forgive somebody? Increase my faith. Increase my faith, my trust in who you are, what you've done for me, the promises waiting for me, that you're coming back for me, that the glories in heaven pale in comparison to the difficulties and struggles here on earth. Increase our faith. And the Lord said, if you have, if you had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you could say to the mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it would obey. To be honest, you go back uh, and you search for these times where, where mulberry trees were taken and thrown out into the ocean or different areas and you just don't see it. Because this is teaching us something. The, the power of faith. The essence of faith is that we are powerless. So it's not that we have this power and we have to muster it up ourselves. It's that our faith in Christ has a power. The one who we put our faith in has a power to help us and empower us to walk a life that we've been called into. It goes on. In verse 7, will any of you who have, has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at the table? The answer is no. Verse 8, will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink? And afterward, you will eat and drink. The answer is yes. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? The answer is no. They're yes and no questions. You have somebody out working really hard in the field that's supposed to be out in the field working. That's their job. That's their duty. And they come in. Do you reward them? No. Instead, you ask them to keep doing their job because that's their job. And they will eat after you. Verse 10. So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what our duty was. The Bible often, it's very interesting, often you'll see these men of faith, women of faith, say things like this, I have nothing to boast about. 
And when we're reading, like we're reading it and we're looking at their life versus our life, we're like, oh, yes, you do. You have something to boast about. Because if you've seen my life in comparison to your life, you have something to boast about. And these men and women of great faith say, I have nothing to boast about. And because the root of it is this. They're like, I'm still an unworthy servant. Because anything that I come as an offering in the sense of a way to earn some worthiness on my own are filthy rags. And so as we then do what we're commanded to do, we're just unworthy servants. Put your horn away. There's no tooting to be had done there. We're just doing what our duty is. And the only way that makes sense, the only way, listen, the only way that what I just said makes sense is if you take the light of the reality of what Jesus has done and shine it onto your life. Then in that light, in the, sh- in the light of Jesus, then you can see what it really is. Now this, this is nothing. This is my duty here. Looking what Jesus has done for us. You want a reward for, for giving another sinful human for saying trash behind your back and they keep doing it? Look at what has done, been done for you. Much greater has been done for you. You've done worse and, and were forgiven by somebody greater. And so that's the only way it makes sense. The only way we get through it is faith in Jesus Christ and increased faith where we can look at that and we can be like, you know what? I don't deserve that forgiveness. This person maybe doesn't for, for, uh, deserve that forgiveness, but I was shown great mercy, grace, and love that I'll never be able to duplicate in all of my lifetime. The least I can do is my duty to forgive. And to be honest, I don't know if this is too rubber meets the roadie for you, but I'm like, I think that sometimes that's the only way you get through life. I think that's the only way you get through marriage sometimes. That's the only way you get through uh, raising your kids. That's the only way you get through having close friends for any number of years. Is just being able to sit in the light of what Jesus has done and that reality and then be obedient to the Word of God. And if you haven't felt it yet, I'll say the words. It's a very humble place to be. Then it goes on, and we're going to read verse 20 through 37 and wrap this up here. So this is a whole separate thing. We've now moved. Be okay with the break. It's going to feel abrupt, and that's okay. One day the Pharisees asked Jesus, When will the kingdom of God come? Jesus replied, The kingdom of God can't be detected by visible signs. You won't be able to say, here it is, or it's over there, for the kingdom of God is already among you. (coughs) It shouldn't be a surprise that the Pharisees ask this. It shouldn't be a surprise that anybody is asking Jesus this. Because in the Old Testament, you see this new king and kingdom. The Gospels all talk about this new kingdom. Luke talks about this new kingdom. And so people are then asking, when will the kingdom of God come? Now keep in mind what they're looking for, okay? They're looking for, and we've talked about this a lot. Have you gotten the cornerstone at all? For a year or more, we should be familiar with this. That people were looking for like a physical, political, geopolitical king that will take 
the politics and turn them and deliver them from the political persecution they're having or the governmental persecution they're having. They aren't necessarily aware of the spiritual condition and the urgency of that condition. They're looking for Jesus to go sit on an actual big chair with a scepter and rule. Then he said to his disciples, Oh, keep in mind, his answer is, it's among you. Then he said to his disciples, The time is coming when you will long to see the day when the Son of Man returns, but you won't see it. People will tell you, look, there, there is the Son of Man, or here he is, but don't go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other, so it will be on the day when the Son of Man comes. But first, the Son of Man must suffer terribly and be rejected by his generation. When the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days, the people enjoyed banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat and the flood came and destroyed all of them. And the world will be as it was in the days of Lot. People went about their daily business, eating and drinking and buying and selling and farming and building, until the morning Lot left Sodom. Then fire and burning sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Yes, it will be business as usual right up until the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, a person out on the deck of a roof must not go down into the house to pack. A person out in a field must not return home. Remember what happened to Lot's wife. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. If you let your life go, you will save it. That night, two people will be asleep in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding flour together at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Where will this happen, Lord? The disciples asked. And Jesus replied, Just as the gathering of vultures show there is a carcass nearby, so the signs indicate that the end is near. Let me summarize. You won't expect it, and when it happens, you will know it. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess as lightning lights up the sky. As far as the eye can see, it appears it goes from one side to the other, lighting up our world. So it will be when Jesus Christ returns. There will be other people claiming to be the Messiah. We've already seen them. They're on YouTube. And they were then when there was no YouTube. There will continue to be, and we don't have to go searching, is this the returning of, of Jesus? Is this the returning of Jesus? We will know. And as far as the signs, people will take this and be like, what are the signs? Oh, there will be this happening and this happening, buying and selling. Oh, once there's a lot of buying and selling and we see it publicly, it's going to be a sign. The point is that those things are going to be happening and you're going to be caught off guard by it. We're not going to know. Now, there are signs in general of like, this is what it will look like moving forward. But as far as us knowing when... Jesus returns, we will not know. And so what does it mean then that the kingdom of God is among us or uh, in you or in the midst of us? Those are the interpretations of that word there. What does that mean then? Because it's here and then he talks about it's coming. Exactly. Yes and. Already, not yet. Those are some phrases you'll hear. And the idea is that the kingdom of God is happening 
but it's not complete yet, but this is part of the process. As soon as Jesus comes, and in Jesus and his works on earth, the kingdom of God is, yes, happening, and yet also it's not yet. So we live in a very unique, special time. Where we do, we are in the new covenant. We do see the kingdom of God. We do have that influence. We do see, uh, uh, I'll, I'll explain it this way. R.C. Sproul, so this isn't me. R.C. Sproul says it this way. In, ref, in reference to what the kingdom of God is. It's in people's hearts. It's in the spiritual changes that come to pass when people are submissive to the reign of God and where hearts are in reliance with the purpose of God. That's where the kingdom is. That's where we begin to see the kingdom here. That's how it's in our midst right now. And then, yes, in a greater sense, when Jesus returns, the kingdom of God will then also be in a new way also there. In the person and work of Christ is where we see it now. In us, we can see it now in our submission and obedience to the Lord on earth as it is in heaven, on earth as it is the way God wants it. So where does that leave us? It's kind of big, two big movements. One is we're, we're, we're all going to deal with the temptations. We can't avoid that. But woe to the one that tempts others. The woe is for the person that knows this is wrong and I want to do this and I'm going to bring other people with me into this. Or I'm going, to, I'm going to tempt them to do this thing that I know breaks the moral law of the God of the universe. This is woe to you. It would be better for you to have cement tied around your neck and thrown into the ocean. Because our God says, don't you dare tempt even the least of these people to disobey me to come against me. Then it goes on to when there is sin, whether you are tempting and you're in sin, which probably is the most direct correlation here, you confront that brother, you confront that sister, you rebuke them. And don't forget, if you're like, oh, awesome, I've been waiting for this passage. I love rebuking others. It makes me feel so great inside. There's a whole section of text woven throughout Scripture on what this rebuking somebody looks like, what these judgments look like. And it is a tall order for you to step into that. So I caution you to meditate upon the Word before you go and rebuke somebody and make a judgment and rebuke somebody. Then, not divorced from the command to forgive those who are repentant. That's part of it. We don't ignore that. If we go and rebuke somebody and they are repentant, now it's on you. If this were a movie, the camera would be on the bad guy tempting somebody to sin. And then the camera goes to you. What are you going to do? And then you go and you rebuke them in the way the Bible describes that we rebuke somebody in love and patience and kindness and gentleness. And then the camera pans back to them. And then, and then they repent. And then the camera pans back to you. What are you going to do? We forgive. This passage doesn't even allow us to intentionally muddy the waters with what if they aren't repentant. We can just explicitly talk about the instances 
where they are repentant, you forgive them because you've been forgiven much. And in what light, how does this, how is this possibly, how, does this, how is this actually possible for us to do? In the real life scenarios that break our hearts, raise anger in us, take children away from us, take parents away from us. The response is, Lord, increase my faith, my trust in you. And then, there's this question, when are we going to see the kingdom? And Jesus says, I am the kingdom. I am kingdom come. Yes, and there's more. This is, there's a story here of the kingdom. We're at the beginning of that, and I am the kingdom come. And then there is more. And just to put the rest, every single person that is tempted to then go and find the date and time and write a book about it or post a YouTube about it, the point of all of the end time passages, nearly all of them, is to say, in general, this is what the landscape is going to look like. This is what the future looks like. But you won't know when. It will take you by surprise. You will be making bread, and then the person next to you is gone. You will wake up, and the person next to you is gone. You'll be in the middle of a business deal, and it's over. You won't expect it. We won't know. And Pastor CJ, uh, we were discussing this maybe a year ago, probably in Matthew. And for him, he thought, he thought of the passage that talks about there are certain knowledge, there's certain knowledge that belongs only to the Lord. And that there's times where we feel like we are trying to step into things and know things that the Lord has reserved for himself. And one of the things that is absolutely clear in Scripture is that the day when Jesus returns is known by God and God only. And he keeps it that way on purpose. So let us not go and try to find something that God has isolated for himself and live the way he's instructed us to. And we live as if it can happen any moment. We've talked about this in the last couple weeks. If you've been a part of it, you'll know it, you'll feel it. It'll sound familiar. We are to be ready. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage. Uh, Very difficult to uh, spend several hours several days on and sit with. And I, and I pray that uh, the followers of you here would have that same struggle, actually, sitting with the reality of temptations, being reminded that we have a responsibility to fight those, but also we have a responsibility not to be the tempter, to not intentionally cause a brother or sister to stumble. To know and love our brothers and sisters in such a way where we know what their strengths and weaknesses are. What their own evil thoughts and desires are and we help walk with them away from those things, not lead them into those things, lest it be better for us to drown in the ocean. You are a jealous God that wants all of us. In light of us being While we were still enemies, you came and sacrificed your life on the cross so that we could have life in you. It makes it possible for us to see how these passages make sense 
and that we are able to walk through these things because we were forgiven much more than we will we can ever duplicate in quantity in depth or breadth God you will come for your people and I pray that we'd always be ready being ready looks like placing our faith in Christ alone I do pray that as we uh, step away after this last song, seeing how amazing you are in your grace, that we will be able to fellowship together and that you will be glorified even as we eat lunch together. We love you, and in Jesus Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast by Cornerstone Church of Ione. We hope that you found it encouraging and challenging. Please feel free to share this podcast with friends and family, and we will see you all next week.